Welcome back to another episode of the Balance with Sam podcast. I am so, so happy you're here. My name is Sam, if you don't know that already, and I'm going to be giving you mindset shifts to lose weight so you can become the most confident and unstoppable version of yourself in work and life. Seriously, I'm just going to be giving you doses of realness and reminders of how badass you already are. And so I'm really excited that you're spending time here and I appreciate you and love you so much. Now let's dive into the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Balance with Sam podcast. On today's episode, I have an incredible guest. His name is Tim Warren. I should say Dr. Tim Warren. And he he means a lot to me for a lot of reasons, one of being which my boy he is my boyfriend's dad, but he <laughs> also my second dad. Um, but Tim is an incredible guy who has so many stories and an incredible story that he's we're going to be talking talking about and diving into today, one of being which he climbed Mount Everest. Um, and it's something I say because like it's it's almost like at this point, it's so casual to say because I've said it so many times, but anytime anyone hears me say, oh yeah, he climbed Mount Everest, it's like, oh, that's a big freaking deal. So I want to introduce Tim and welcome him to the podcast. And yeah, hi Tim. I'm so excited to have you. Well, Sam, it's, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Um, it's also a pleasure to be Chris' dad. I know, right? <laughs> he had to come from somewhere, somewhere great. So, <laughs> so for everyone listening, um, Tim is also he has a he has a chiropractic practice, and so he has been practicing for how long have you been practicing for? Well, actually, I sold my practice after twenty five years. Twenty five years. So yeah, so right, yeah, so I I started in the late eighties. Yeah, and uh, finished up in the early in like 2012, and I've been working more in the online space since 2012. Yeah, and wrote a couple of books during that period of time, and yeah, you know, continued my hiking and everything, but at a lesser level than sure. the going to the Himalaya and, and uh, risking death and dismemberment. <laughs> so I'm, I'm done with that stuff. <laughs> well, it's a, it's an incredible journey. I think um, I'm excited to kind of dive in and share your story and just ask you a bunch of questions and things like sure. that I don't even know. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, right now you're so you're kind of transitioning a little bit into the online space, and I think it's a beautiful thing to have had your chiropractic um, background, and now you're trying to help people kind of all around the world, right, with their back pain and and kind of overcoming exactly exactly i was lucky enough to to uh, directly work with over ten thousand individuals in those 25 years and uh you know i I, I got great results with most of them but uh, the frustration was is that people were not really super motivated or i wasn't super motivated uh, or i wasn't able to super motivate them in their nutrition and their exercise, in other words, the other things that would have uplifted their entire health. They yeah. came for me for a problem, pain, acute or chronic, got, got done with that, but were not really that interested in, in other benefits that they could have gotten to minimize the chances of that becoming more chronic. So in my business now, I can rectify that. Yeah. I can work on all those other parts of, of, uh, of health and uh you know, I specifically, my, my smallest niche is that I want to help people who have been lifelong athletes like myself. I've been an athlete since I was 12 years old. I'm 59. I'm just breathing at 60. It's like a month away. <laughs> and I've always been an, an athlete, and I will always be an athlete. And um, 
that doesn't mean I'm competitive in any way, but it does mean that, you know, every week, if not every day, I'm looking at my, at, at my physical activity. I'm training for something. I'm training just for my 120th birthday and nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that, that motivates me and excites me. And I never feel quite right unless I'm, I'm really paying attention to my fitness and my nutrition and my headspace. The yeah. big three. Yeah, for sure. I love that you said that, like training for life. Uh, people sometimes will like ask, oh, like, what are you training for? It's like, just life, just general health and like longevity. And, and, you know, your, your story, which we will dig into in a second, I think inspires, inspires me so much, but it's also like, you know, sure. You could be training to climb Mount Everest, right. Or, or not like for the the person that's listening right now, like you guys aren't training for Everest. Let's be real. Like that's not a common thing. Like, weren't you the first Rhode Islander to, to summit actually? I was. Yeah. That's crazy. Like you're, you're, right. you're a statistic and it's, right. it's like, sure. We may not be climbing Everest. Right. But like you're training to have a full life in all of those right. ways that you just talked about. So like the holistic, well-rounded person. Um, right. So yeah, I love that. <laughs> cool. So let's dig into kind of Everest and, and everything. Um, how I think we can maybe dig in just through starting, like, what actually motivated you or inspired you to even want to climb in the first place? Like, when did that start? Well, I think it kind of goes back to childhood. My, my parents were, you know, they were out of the box kind of people. Yeah. And we camped all the time. Like, my mom was a, was a part-time registered nurse. My dad was a school teacher. And then later he built solar homes. But every time we had a vacation, we would get in, like, it's a rusty Volkswagen bus. It was so rusted, it was kind of collapsing in the center. <laughs> I would go to New Hampshire or Maine and would camp. And then in 1975, when I was 15, and my sister was a little younger, my brother was a little older, we got on a rusty pickup truck and drove across the country and went to all the national parks and hiked. And, you know, we didn't, we weren't doing any technical climbing, but we did a lot of hiking. Yeah. And lived in tents for the whole summer, and it was awesome as a kid. And oh, so right then, so you know, it just, yeah, it was, it was super awesome. And, uh, and uh, then I got into other sports. I was, I was heavily into long distance running for most of my life, actually, from the age of 12 till I was in my mid-40s. And then I got into triathlons. And then only in the 90s did I get back into backpacking. And then I started to read a bunch of books, and I got heavily into mountaineering at that time. Yeah. And then... And mountaineering, I climbed my first really big mountain, which is Mount Rainier in Washington State. Mm -hmm. And it was such an awesome experience. It was a six-day climb, and I was taking a seminar, a mountaineering seminar. So every at the end of every day, they'd give you a little class. And, and it was a dangerous climb. A person had died the, the week before I got on the plane to go out there. And so it's not without peril. But I loved it so much, and I thought, you know, every year I'm going to climb a big mountain somewhere in the world because I love to travel. I got that from my grandparents on my maternal side. They just didn't have a lot of money, but they traveled. Yeah. And so uh, I, I, I said, someplace in the world. And so the next year, I went to Africa and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, which is not a technical climb. It's a, it's a hike, but it's super high. It's 20,000 feet in the air. And it was a two-week expedition, and it was just awesome. And it was great because it, it's, it started me on, on my type of travel is to go where the tour buses don't go. 
<laughs> Same. Okay. Oh my and gosh. Just to hang out with the with the local people. Yeah. And so we just hung out in, in African small African villages and Maasai villages and went into the little mud huts and um, saw how they how a different culture lived. It was super great. And then we got to climb a big giant mountain, which uh, was super awesome. And Mount Kilimanjaro is cool because it, it, it encompasses all five different uh, climactic zones that there is in the mm. world. Like it starts off in the rainforest and it goes to the Arctic at the top. And there's, so there's different grades of that and, and really crazy plants like Dr. Seuss trees that, um, <laughs> that you don't see over here at all. It yeah. was really, really a cool trip. So it's not just climbing the mountain because I love to test my my physical and my mental capabilities on a big mountain, but it's also, I love that cultural bent too. Mm, yeah. And from there, you know, I kind of went someplace every year, a big mountain every year. I never thought about climbing Mount Everest until it was on my second attempt of Denali, which is in Alaska. It's the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere, actually the highest in North America. And, uh, it was just a, uh, we had a four person team, two of them had dropped out. And really on, on, uh, on a climb like Denali, you, it's, it's not safe to have any less than three. Yeah. We only had two, but we just decided to go for it. So my friend Rob and I from New Hampshire, we just, we were on just a rope team of two and we were climbing. We got to the top, lucky enough to get to the top. And when you get to the top of any mountain, guess what? You're halfway. You still have to survive the way down. It's no good. It's really embarrassing if you die on the way down. Yeah. Yeah, so your ego's embarrassed. Yeah, your ego's all done. So uh, we we got all the way down from there, and I thought maybe just maybe I have the stuff for Mount Everest. I wasn't sure, but I thought maybe just maybe. So that was the first time it really popped into my head. It's on the top of Denali. Yeah. So you were already thinking about that next thing. While you always thinking about, yeah, that's where my mind works. It's always thinking about the next thing and the next challenge. And I love to challenge myself. I love to get out of my comfort zone. Um, I try not to get too much out of my comfort zone, but just a little bit beyond my comfort zone because I find that's, for me, that's where big growth happens. Yeah. Where did that come from? Like, where does that desire to get out of your comfort zone come from? It's a good question. I, 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 I don't know, it's, it's a quest for, for inner and outer adventure. And uh, one of the one cool things is my older brother, when he, was, when he graduated from high school, he hitchhiked to the West Coast from the East Coast with a friend of his. And I was a junior in high school at the time. And I was like, I am so doing that when I, when I get out. And that adventure, and, that, uh, and this is in the 70s, you can't do this anymore, but in the 70s, it was probably the last time you could do it. So sure enough, three days after we graduated from high school, my buddy Dave and I at the time stuck our thumbs out in Connecticut and went to California. And we slept in under bridges and we um, took showers in universities. We would sneak into the gyms in universities. We would, we would sleep in, in like a lot of colleges and places would have outdoor pools yeah. and they all had chaise lounges. So we would jump the fences and sleep in the <laughs> chaise lounges. Um, but we also slept in graveyards. And, but anyway, the whole thing, the whole thing, and nothing bad happened, which was incredible. Nobody died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the one thing yeah. you just have to just avoid. Yeah. Just avoid Nobody that. died. Right. But 
nobody would dream of doing that anymore. But it, I was 18 years old, and the guy I was with was 17 all the time, and, and it was pretty incredible. Um, and I think that just gave me like, wow, anything is possible. Yeah, we can do this. We can be safe. We can have a great time. Mm-hmm. But most people aren't doing this stuff. Most people aren't just getting out of their comfort zone and doing different things. And I think I got that from my pa- my family because they they just did they did different things. A lot of which was I was embarrassed at as a little kid. But uh, I it's, I'm very thankful right now for that upbringing. Yeah. So I think like kind of what I'm hearing you say is like you had to witness someone taking a leap of faith, right? Or like facing fear head on right. in order for you to right. see possible for you. And then as soon as you did that one thing, it was almost like a trigger. It was. Yeah, it, it really was. But I'm going to say, I've got to go out to my first attempt on Everest. I did not succeed on Everest on my first try. And I was so overly in my head and I was just so afraid the fear went for me was overwhelming because I had read too many books about Mount Everest yeah. I was scared to death I just for the life of me I could not visualize myself on the summit of Mount Everest and getting down safely yeah. and so um, I didn't I got sick I got really sick I got a bad throat infection I got a bad lung infection I made a kind of a, a, an attempt, but I had no energy left. And it, I'm, I'm convinced that was just burnt up psychic energy because I was not able to adequately see myself at the top. And so when I came down from that trip, uh, I decided almost within three days, first of all, I had a mental battle. I, got, I was never going to go back there. I can't believe I did the stupid thing. Yes. Is, I never want to see another mountain again for the rest of my life. What a ridiculous thing. I spent all this money. I scared my family half and down. I'm never doing this again. So after I got over that, I was I, I knew I could do better. I knew I could train better. I knew I could mentally prepare better. Uh, I knew I was going back. But what I did do was I knew I needed some big uh, headspace modification because I could not do it the same way I did it before. So what I did is I, I came back. Um, you can only climb Mount Everest once a year. It only opens a, a weather window between four and 10 days in late May. So you have to wait a complete year to get back on a team. To come. Right. So I bought every sports uh, psychology book that I could get my hands on and perused them from cover to cover. Mm-hmm. Took notes on them, studied it. Some were good, some were not so good. But all sports psychology to me boiled down to one word. Do you know what that word is? No. Visualization. Mm. I failed on Everest the first time because I could not see myself at the summit and coming down safely. Just couldn't do it. I could not see myself there. And I failed. Yeah. So the next year, uh, once I kind of understood this concept of, uh, of visualization, that's what I worked on for an entire year. I changed my training and everything too. I changed some nutritional things. Um, my mantra was I want to have the, the best equipment, the best um, training, the best coaching, and I wanted to have the best mindset. Yeah. Uh, I had most of those the first year, but I did not have the mindset. And so I trained my mindset over that next year and worked hard to visualize, self, visualize myself not only at the top, 
of locking into base camp safe at the end. So uh, I can be because 56% of the deaths that happen on Mount Everest are people that summon but die on the way down. Yeah. Embarrassing again. Oh can't do that. No, so embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. So um, so my mantra is not I'm gonna get to the top of my class, I'm gonna summit. Yeah. No, I'm gonna summit and I'm gonna safely return. And yeah. and I had to you know identify and lock in what is total success. It's walking into base camp finally, uh, safe after we get through the summit. So that was my mindset and it worked out and, and that second year yeah oh my gosh that's that's incredible. all right so you just talked talked about so many things but i think one of the main main points that you made is about visualization so what was the real challenge for you with the first summit and do you think that you reading all of the stories of other people that summited or didn't summit or struggled or whatever did or they died that? yeah or died right do yeah, you think that it's because people six or seven people on average die every year with it normal average season so people are going to die yeah. of course nobody thinks it's going to be them sure. but yeah i think overly reading um, everything there and overly focusing on that put me not in the in the best uh, mindset to succeed yeah uh, but they, they but there was a guy in my team and this guy was not a great climber when you say team, do you mean, uh, can you like explain what, how, how it right. works? Uh, it's a little different on Everest because you, uh, it's safer to be like in Denali in Alaska. Your team is all roped up to you. You're always roped up. You have to rope up to go to the bathroom because there's hidden crevasses and snow bridges that can collapse at any time. And if you don't have a rope on you, you're going to die. And that's, mm -hmm. and that's happened many, many times. So but it's different on, on Mount Everest it's more dangerous to be roped to another human being because if one person just trips on their crampons, which are the spikes that lock them into the ice, then everybody who's on that rope is going to die too. So wow. it's, it's, it's a little different. So it's like your right? journey. It's like, that's yeah, like it's, it's individual. Yeah. Now, just like in Africa, you have, you can only climb uh, Kilimanjaro with a African teammate, sure. which is cool. It's a, it's a cool thing because you can just feel like you Get that cultural connection but just like that on mount everest you have to climb with a sherpa and the local sherpas that's their, essentially their last name uh, the sherpa means it's not a job description for them they're not climbing for you they're not you know they're not even really guiding you they're just a climbing teammate a climbing uh, partner and so you're climbing together which is awesome because the sherpa folks are great so uh, both years i climbed with a, a gentleman named pinjo sherpa and he comes from, and I was lucky enough to go back in 2017 and I went and visited him at his uh, house and a little tiny village, 300 people live in his village. It's a beautiful, picturesque place. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we had, a, a, we're, essentially my point is we're individuals on an Everest climb with our Sherpa climbing partner. So uh, you're on your own on those and uh, it's just a different gig, yeah. Yeah. And I forgot what your first uh, question was on that. No, I think it's good. You, you kind of touched upon it indirectly, but it was like thinking about when you when you tried to summit the first time. Do you think yeah. that like you were so distracted by all these other people's stories or failures that you didn't really right. turn inward and focus on you as your own right. journey and your own shit? You know, I, I did not. Yeah, and and I was overly focused. And then you started to hear stories of the climbers who were superstars in climbing who did not make it 
Yeah. And then there was other uh, stories um, of people that, had, like there's this guy in my team. He wasn't a great climber. He was adequate. He didn't have, he didn't make the best clothes choices or, um, and he made it. So here you have people who you deem as much stronger and better climbers than you who don't make it. And on the other side of it, you have people who are like, oh man, I'm way better climber than him. And he does make it. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was kind of dealing with that, that funkiness there. Yeah. Um, and then what, you know, this, the other year that I went, the world's best climber um, died before the season began and fell to his death there. So that was, he was yeah. best climber in the world at the time. And so it really does a job on you psychologically if you let it. Right. So you have, I, but I, going in the second year, I knew to separate that stuff as best I could and just let, just make the best decisions that I could. Uh, don't be distracted, just really focus on it. Yeah. And it worked out fantastic, even though that doesn't mean there's no challenges because it's a 70 day attempt. 70. Oh, 70, two and a half months. Yeah. So for those two years, uh, 2007 and 2008 for me, I lived on a glacier in Nepal for five months out of those two years trying to get to the top. Wow. And a lot of it is, it's, it's kind of miserable. It's, uh, you're living on a glacier, you're, your mind's going all the time and you have to put all this, all your effort is in going into this and you're missing home and you're missing your family. And, um, but I knew I would all, it would be a cool experience that I always have in my back pocket. Mm -hmm. um, and so that drove me. Yeah. How did you shift into a place of like realizing that you had a choice like, I feel like that's, that was a shift I've noticed in the way that you talked about first summit versus your, you know, getting to the top and making it down successfully. Like you, you started to shift into a space of, oh, I can choose what to focus on. Like I can choose my best equipment or I can choose this, but like, I, I can't control the other stuff. So I'm just going to focus right. on that. Like, how did you make that shift? Well, there's objective challenges, objective challenges or challenges that, that, that are, it's not due to you making a bad decision or something that would be a subjective so there's subjective and there's objective hazards especially in climbing because you could do everything right and climb up uh, to a particular area and you could get hit in the head with a rock and get killed that's nothing you did wrong you just uh, were in the wrong place at the wrong time and that happens all the time in the mountains. but i was not going to make any subjective yeah. mistakes so I kind of was okay if something happened happened objectively, like with an avalanche or something like that. I was okay with it, you know. I was living my dream, but I was bound and determined not to make any subjective mistakes, like uh, you know, uh, not dressing properly, not feeling myself properly, and not having the right mindset as part of the subjective. Yeah. So and, what? And it'll work out. What was like some of the, the things that you can remember with that first attempt, your first summit, like now that in hindsight, like what, what was it that, you know, you were like, wow, I was not prepared in this, 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 like, what are those things? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, it was hard. I was exhausted before I started, which was not, didn't put me in a good place to start. I was exhausted on the trek into base camp. Mm -hmm. I had, um, I, you know, I have, I'm a small businessman. I have a staff that I still had to pay. My office had to stay open. So 
I had hired another doctor and my staff was behind me. My whole patient base was behind me. They were rooting me on. And, uh, but getting my practice ready to go away for two and a half months took a lot of time and a lot of mental effort. And I wasn't, and towards the last two weeks, there was a lot of challenges there. I didn't train very hard. So my training was bad the last two weeks. And I think I overtrained. I think I peaked before I got to Mount Everest. So I was kind of in a deficit, energy deficit from the get-go. Yeah. And, and so, so goes your physical, so goes your mental. That's an additional, if you're not feeling, you know, unbelievable, your mental health suffers as well. And then it was kind of a, you know, kind of a vicious cycle there too. Yeah. And, and an incredible example of the mind-body connection, because I think because I had a hard time visualizing and because I was an energy deficit and I was, uh, I was doing some stinking thinking there, then I think I was susceptible to uh, being becoming ill physically, which is what happened. Yeah. So I, w- I would love to talk a little bit more about that moment when you decided to come back down, like where you were like, I just, this is not in the cards for me, at least this right. first time. Right. Well, yeah. it was slow. And uh, it, it, first of all, I, I had gone back and forth. Uh, should I just give this up? I had sponsors who would put up tens of thousands of dollars for me to be there. So what are my sponsors going to think? Oh, you know, why did I do this? And uh, just all kinds of stuff going back and forth. Um, But so finally I decided, okay, Penjo, you and I, were going to go for the summit. And we started to go for the summit. And the second most dangerous place on an Everest climb is right out of base camp. It's called the Ice Fall. Okay. And it avalanches all the time. It's like huge blocks of ice. Some of them are as big as a refrigerator, and some of them are as big as a apartment building. Holy crap! And, and all this stuff is, is is can fall any second. And many scores of people have died just in that section right there. Yeah. So we were making our way up through there. We were slow because I was slow. I was infected, and and, and Penjo. I remember at one point looked at me and he said we're slow. And I said, and I didn't even answer him. I just kept going. And it probably was only 60 seconds later. And I kind of sunk in what he was saying. We're not going to make it. And I refused to be a burden or a problem to somebody else. So if I kept pushing for the summit and then had to be rescued, I put other people at risk. Didn't want to, I wasn't going to do that. I was, no way I was going to do that. So we made the smart decision to turn around. And as soon as I made that mental decision in my mind, I sat in the ice, Pinjo sat, sat right next to me, and we both cried a river together Yeah. Uh, right there, because it was over. Um, but it was the right decision, because I wasn't going to put anybody else at risk. That's stupid. That's not good. That's not being a good human being. Yeah. So, um, and, and so it was interesting. So I went back down to, to base camp and packed everything up loaded up my duffels and, and the yaks were going to carry my duffels out. So I took off by myself with my backpack on. And uh, I, was, I was in that mindset like, screw this. This was the stupidest decision ever. I hate mountains. I don't even want to see a picture of a mountain. The rest of my life. <laughs> and I invented it. I was, I was like, screw that, man. And, and, then I saw, and then I walked down valley all day, maybe a little six or eight hour hike to this little beautiful little Sherpa village. And I uh, went into the uh, tea house there and I was greeted by the 
the lovely Sherpa family that ran that house and they served me a masala tea and I felt a little better, went to bed, got up the next morning and that next day, that second day, I had another eight hour hike and I had a war in my head Yeah. because these thoughts kept coming in. Yeah, if you train better and if you, you know, fix the, the headspace, uh, you could get, you could probably get to the top. But wait a minute, I hate mountains. I never want to see another mountain. So I was having this war. It was like good and evil. Yeah. And that lasted the whole second day. But the third day, still had another eight hours to get to the airport where you fly to Kathmandu. And you can guess which side won. I woke up and I was all in. I am totally going back. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to train better. I'm going to get my headspace straight. I'm totally going to do it because I was embarrassed a little bit just to myself. Yeah. I had not done my best. Yeah. I just had not done my best. So I didn't, you know, it, was, it wasn't like I knew I was going to get to the top of the world, but I knew I could do my best and I could do better. And that was what, what, what I wanted to do is just really do the, be the best I could do. I wanted to be my potential. I wanted to reach my potential. Yeah. And lucky enough for me, my potential was the next year, not without problems the second trip, too, because there was a lot of problems the second day. But uh, being able to get to the top and spend, uh, see the curve of the earth from the top of the world. I was at Pinjo and I were at the top of the world as the sun came up. We were the, we were the first thing that the sun was hitting. It was unbelievable. We had it just for ourselves. Um, it was really great. It would be really great if I wasn't really afraid, which I was up there, and freezing to death. Yeah. Oh man, it was cold. Yeah, what was the temperature up there? It was probably 25 below, uh, which was not that cold because we we're all we had like one piece down suits that were like walking around in the Michelin Man outfit. Yeah. But it's the, but there's only one third of the oxygen on the summit of Everest that there is where you and I are right now, sitting here on the East Coast. Um, and so what that means is when we're at sea level, all the oxygen molecules are pushed down to sea level. Mm-hmm. And we, if we tested our, our blood oxygenation, would be 99, 100% oxygen saturation, you and I right now, everybody on the East Coast. But with, a, with one third less, uh, with one third of the oxygen at the summit, your body is making the choice to keep yourself alive. So you, your body shunts the oxygen to the brain and the vital organs and away from your arms and your legs, away mm-hmm. from the extremities. Right. So without good oxygen, your, your arms and legs are, I couldn't feel them at all. They were wooden, they were just like claws. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I had to use one hand to force my hand around my climbing equipment just to use it, my ice axe and my my rope to clip onto the rope and things like that. I just had to force it on there because they just didn't belong to me. <laughs> I was getting frostbitten slowly and surely. So we, we yeah. all this time and effort to get to the top and we probably spent maximum seven, maybe 10 minutes at the top. Oh my God. Oh yeah. I, that, I want to dig into that in a little bit, but before we go into your your actual summit and like the descent. Cause I think that's, you know, we could probably talk about that for hours. Um, but before we dive into that, I want to know what, when was the point where you decided you were going to make the summit again, where you had that moment of like, Oh my gosh, I'm not reaching my potential. Like, did that happen before you went to bed or like, do you remember what was kind of like racing through your mind? 
You mean the first time? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was really sitting on that block of ice with Pinjo and crying in the river. That was the first time I gave up the dream. Yeah. And uh, But it was the right call. I knew it was the right call. So it was obviously very emotional. And uh, it was a years-long dream at that particular stage. And it just wasn't in the cards. It was I had to give up the dream at that stage. Yeah. But then so quickly, within what, three days, you decided? Three days. You made that three, other Well, thing. I knew... I, I just knew I could do better. I started, my mind started when you're alone. And what I essentially was, was in meditation. As I'm walking by myself and just walking along, seeing all the little baby yaks that were born since the time I was up. It was, it was, it was just nonstop moving meditation. And in that meditation, I just realized, and that's, I wasn't embarrassed that I hadn't made the top. I was embarrassed that I didn't do the best I could do. Yeah. And, and that was not a good feeling. And I knew I had to come back and do it. So uh, by the time I got back and met up with my with my teammates, I was totally happy again and like woohoo! Because I knew it was going to happen. I was just going to go back. I was going to put this plan in, in in action, and I was coming back. And it was going to be a whole different year. Yeah, I love that. I think having the like what. Uh, two or three days of eight hour trek by yourself. It's like it, yeah. it created the space for you to see maybe exactly. what was possible. You know, exactly. It's- and it's what each of us can do in, in meditation. And if you like moving meditation, that's great. I personally love moving meditation, which is hiking in the woods. I spend as much time in the woods as possible. I live in the woods, so uh, it's yeah. easier for me. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and, uh, you know, people meditate in different ways. And it, just kind of, and the easiest form of meditation, which everybody can do, whether you're stuck in a meeting, in a cubicle, whatever, is just concentrating on your breathing. And I always recommend one, one I call it one-two breathing. Some people call it box breathing. But it's a ratio of one inspiration to a count of two expiration. So in through your nose, let's say, count of three, one, two, three, and then you expirate through the mouth, it's six. So that one-two breathing is very relaxing, taps into our parasympathetic nervous system, which causes down. And so that's as simple as that. You can do that in the middle of a meeting and nobody will even know. Yeah. I, that's such a great actionable tool for everyone too, because yeah. they're probably in meetings right now like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> right. They're listening to you on a podcast. <laughs> exactly. You might as well do some breathing. <laughs> you guys are in the car, like driving your kids to work. Like, oh, I don't know, <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> so that's, I think that's, that's great. Like a mad, I wonder what would have happened if you didn't have that small hike down by yourself. Like if something would yeah. have. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, I don't know. It's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure. And most people don't make it. So my teammates that year, I think, uh, eight of us made it the first of, of people made it the first year I was there out of a team of 22 we started with okay talking westerners and then the second year is about the same I think eight of us made it to the top out of 22 or 24 mm-hmm. and uh, we had uh, uh, the, the, the year that I made it there was two women on the team they both made it uh, they were in that eight but um, uh, but there's a lot of people that didn't make it for one reason or another one guy started hemorrhaging on the way up, just bleeding out of his nose. Oh and because there was so little oxygen, there was no clotting that was taking place at all. Yeah. When you're that high, 
nothing heals, like scabs don't heal, your lungs don't heal, nothing heals. There's no oxygen. You need oxygen for everything. Uh, so he just, you know, they made, you know, tampons for his nose kind of thing to stick in there and nothing. And eventually he had to be helicoptered off because he lost 20% of his lung, his uh, blood volume. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, so that was just one story. Yeah, it makes you grateful for what you do have, right? Like when you're yeah. here. Like, wow, oxygen. Yeah. You don't even consciously think about that. I know it. I know it. We don't have to worry about it here, but, right. but there's places in the world where you, where you totally do. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the little things. We should be grateful for the little things. Yeah. Do you think that that was what helped you summit the second time? I think so. I, I'm just more aware of everything. And I talk a lot about awareness in my first book called Lessons from Everest. It's really the summit is awareness, and that's what we should all strive for. Uh, it's just awareness means a kind of a realization of where you are in space and a general acceptance of yourself. So a lot of that anxiety is, is gone. Uh, I should be doing this. No, I should be doing that. Uh, that goes away, and there's a sense of calm and acceptance, and that is truly being self-actualized as a human being. So it's a, it's a goal to strive for. Yeah. How do you, if, you know, if people listening feel like they're like so far away from that or feel like it's not possible, um, do you have any suggestions for maybe first steps in towards getting, you know, or reclaiming some of that awareness? Well, I think the first step is to know yourself well enough to know the little things about yourself that that you, that really help you to feel better about yourself. For example, I, if I'm not in shape, somewhat in shape and I don't have to be like in that best fitness of my life but as long as I'm doing something every week I feel good about myself Mm -hmm. I don't feel good about myself if I'm gone two weeks and I'm I'm starting to get out of shape my body doesn't feel good my mind doesn't feel good I'm bummed out and then it's hard for me to get started again so you just got to keep going and like you know you have to brush your teeth every day you just got to know the little things that you can do every day or week that really work for you. Yeah. Um, little things. You know, if I, if I eat poorly in nutrition, and now I'm a notorious cookie eater and, and for Christmas cookies over the holidays. <laughs> so um, I, my, I'm just going to eat as many as I can and then put them away and then just work and not do it for another year. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so, but blowing it nutritionally is, uh, is something that we all have done. We're all going to do. But when you come off a binge, you just go cold turkey. And I feel good with that. I feel great having the opportunity to do both. Yeah. So it's the little tiny things that you just have to kind of document for yourself. And if you have to write them down, write them down. It makes you feel awesome. Um, I don't feel good if I have uh, lung, if I have back hair. So I cut my back here. <laughs> it's a little thing. Yeah. It's me. It, it's, it, it's just me. I just don't feel awesome if I have back hair. Not that anybody's ever going to see it. Right. But it's just one of those things. So it's on my list of little things to take care of. And uh, that's, you just eliminate them. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. So like, I guess going up the mountain, right? If we were to use your own advice on yourself, what were some of the little things that you had to uh, kind of take note of or document or whatever to get yourself up in times of, you know, difficulty? Well, um, 
I, I just, I saw my whole existence because one of the cool things about climbing is it's so simple. It's so much simpler than the life that we live out here in the big city. Uh, all you, you just have to stay alive. And how do you stay alive? It's like I had this virtual dashboard, like the dashboard of your car, you know, that says oil pressure and, and speed and you have your mirrors and everything. Well, my dashboard climbing Everest was like, how's my core temperature? How's my extremity temperature? Do I need to drink a little bit of water? Is it safe enough? Are all my crampons stuck in the, in the ice? Is my ice axe jammed in the ice? Uh, and how's my head? Because uh, the two ways that people die on Mount Everest is through cerebral edema, which means the brain swells. Mm. And that's exactly the same as being drunk. People stagger, they slur their words, and they collapse. So there, and there's shades of gray leading up to that. So you constantly have to monitor yourself and talk to your teammates mm -hmm. and to get feedback to see if you're losing it. Right. And another, and another way is pulmonary edema where your lungs swell. And so then you have to spit every now and then and make sure there's no blood in your sputum because that, if that happens, you have to go down right away just to save your life. So those were the kind of things that were on my dashboard at all times. And it's crazy because if you sweat up there, you're going to lose body parts. If you sweat, uh, you're, if you get moisture in there, it's going to freeze. You're going to have, you're going to get a frostbite in your fingers or your toes. So you have to vent, the, the clothes are made to vent the air in there if you're getting too hot and to button up if you're getting too cold. So you're constantly zipping it up or zipping it down. So all that stuff is on your virtual dashboard. And I would have a different dashboard down here where I'm at at sea level. Yeah. But, you know, I was famous for the second Everest climb because uh, I threw up so much. <laughs> I'm sure it was a mental thing. Like I met like um, uh, when, you know, we were, went to Australia and we, we met with uh, a guy who was a, his big mountaineering guide. He was on our team. And he said, yeah, you, you were, you're still famous over there for, for puking all the way to the summit and all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't puke here, but I was puking there, apparently. So uh, <laughs> Whatever gets you through. <laughs> I know, which is dangerous, though, because you because you, if you don't drink a lot, if you get dehydrated, you're totally screwed. Yeah. So every time you get it, so it's not healthy. I was really, that was additional stress on me was right. trying to make sure that I don't, uh, you know, get dehydrated and die from throwing up. Yeah. <laughs> so like constant monitoring and checking in with yourself. All yeah, the, the virtual dashboard yeah and you have like like down here at sea level your dashboard has rear view mirrors and your side mirrors and everything and that's kind of like looking in your past your past plays a little bit mm -hmm. of a role of how you are now and then your your dashboard the, the window in front of you is the future and the present is kind of the dials on dashboard so you kind of have to kind of keep track of all of them make sure that you're not being run by the past or to overly focused on the future but to get back right to the to the present which is uh is is most important in life i think we, we uh, as we're humans wandering around on this earth and trying to do the best we can do we can get overly focused on our past or our future Mm -hmm. We need to spend, we need to, oh, part of awareness, again, which I said is the summit of the mountain, 
we got to focus on the present. That's where awareness is. Yeah. I love the concept of virtual dashboard. I've never heard that before, but I can. That's because I made that up. Oh, well, it's a coin that. No, but it's like, I think it gives people a good visual. Like for me now, I'm like, ooh, what are my things? Like, what are my rules or non-negotiables that I have mm-hmm. to like, yeah. and, and knowing to like, you talked about acceptance, like acknowledging that sometimes something has to be neglected for something else to grow or, you know, to improve sure. upon. But knowing that it's all still, it also matters, but it's like how you, you know, you adjusting the little dials. And so, exactly. yeah. yeah, yeah, I think. And you're going to have a different one than I do. And right. everybody on the face of the earth is going to have a different one. But I think it's our individual job to figure out what our little non-negotiables are, how we adjust our dials. And uh, that's, that's a super important thing to do as a human being. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like. If you don't know where you are, you can't know where you're going to go. It's like, I, I once heard, um, imagine if you op- opened up Google Maps, right? And like, there was no blue dot to show you where you were. It's like, right. how would you get anywhere? Because you don't even know right. where you are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like that. Great analogy. I love that. Yeah. That recognition. All right. So you you get to the top of this insane Lamallan. How many, uh, what's the elevation at the top? 29,035 feet. 29, oh my gosh. Yeah, so it's only a five and a half mile hike. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. It's just straight up. Yeah. <laughs> it just happens to be in the troposphere where the jet, uh, the jets fly. So yeah. Oh my gosh. So you're up there, right? Like you get to the top, maybe moments before, were you like, oh my God, I'm about to do this? Or like, what was going through your mind? It was. Uh, it's the last 45 minutes, it's relative, easy stuff but you don't want to walk too close to this to the edge because it's cornice which means the wind blows the snow out and those can break off and you can fall off which people have done yeah. so it's it was pretty easy so getting above the what's called the hillary step which is one of the most famous pitches in in, in the world mm-hmm. i knew i was going to make the top because you could see it 45 minutes in, uh, ahead yeah and it was a gradual awareness that that was going to happen so it was pretty cool but again still scared to death and still um still terrified but terror and the fear is a good thing too because it keeps you very very safe but if it's unwarranted and gets out of control that's when it's a a real deleterious yeah emotion to have so it worked for you as you were going up like knowing that you could have died at any second i mean the whole entire trip you could have died at any second but how did you kind of face that like logically versus emotionally, I guess. Well, you know, I was pretty, my dashboard had been checked just about every second. I was constantly scanning the dashboard. So I knew I was in pretty good shape. I felt strong. Uh, Interestingly, getting to the top and then coming down, I was really exhausted, which is not uncommon. You know, the the body runs on some strange octane. When you have a strong goal, your body's going to get there. But then as soon as you get there, there can be a letdown. Too. So I was aware of that. So on the way down, I had to have a different dashboard kind of because I knew my mind was starting to go. I knew my body was starting to go. There was nothing left at all. Yeah. You know, I hadn't slept in, in almost 50 hours at that particular stage. And I, I was dehydrated. There was no food in my stomach. So I knew I was, and I was losing. I knew I was losing it. So just all my being was going into make sure I was clipped onto the safety rope. 
Yeah. So just like, that was my entire, that was just my one thing. Make sure my crampons were in the ice and make sure I was clipped onto a rope. And sometimes uh, it was, I had to grab, there's a bunch of dead ropes up there from the last 30 years too. And some of them are just the inner, they're, they're, the, the ropes are rotted away to nothing. So I just grabbed all the ropes and just kind of swung down on them, which is terrifying. Yeah. It was really the only thing that could go, that could, it was the safest thing to do at the time even though it was very terrifying. Yeah, for sure. Not good mountaineering technique. <laughs> hey, that's okay. You made it alive, so that's why we you care about it. Yeah. <laughs> so you spent seven minutes at the top, basically, right? Yes. You like took some yeah. photos. Like, what did you do up there? Like, what yeah. was happening? Took some photos. Uh, Penjo had... Uh, He's a devout Buddhist. He was a child monk growing up, and he uh, had a picture of the Dalai Lama, which he took, would want me to take a picture of. And he had created a kata scarf, K-A-T-A scarf, mm-hmm. which is a ceremonial Buddhist scarf. And I and he had it all beautifully. It was printed with both our names. I was like, cool, man. <laughs> and but he left it up there because that's the whole point. You leave it up there. And the little strings gradually become airborne and blow around the world, and it's just good karma for the for the world. So uh, yeah, so it was really a, a fun thing. But it was we had to get the hell out of there because it was right. we were freezing to death too. Yeah. So, yeah. so you make it up, you hit the you hit the top, and then you're like, I just climbed Mount Everest. <laughs> uh, that did not. It did. That did not really sink in. Yeah. Uh, so that did not really sink in. Actually, I don't think it sunk in for months afterwards. Literally, I am not making that up. There was because you're so sleep deprived. I was like, did I just dream that, or did that happen? I literally was having that conversation with myself even a year later. Wow, uh, it was so weird. Yeah, and, and your your mind is just devoid of oxygen, so you're just like wondering, holy crap, did that really happen? <laughs> so it was a gradual unfolding of that. It was really a very odd, very strange um, experience. Yeah, and then you yeah. you you went down. You safely descended. Safely went down. I was I was definitely it was hard coming down. That was the the, the biggest challenge I would say was getting down safely. I really had nothing at all left physically. Or mentally. And um, I was starting to suffer from cerebral edema. I started to have the symptoms of cerebral edema, starting to lose my mind a little bit. So again, it was just my dashboard at that stage was I'm pretty sure I'm gonna survive down to the next camp, but I gotta get down from camp three to camp two. And that was a hell of a challenge. Camp three to camp two. Yeah. What was, was the uh, part? Who's mentally, I, I was, for whatever reason, I was starting to focus. My mind was starting to wander. I was forgetting what I was doing. Mm. So I was taking, I was actually looking at mirages and I was, my mind, I was starting to lose my mind, really. Yeah. So, which was the first time of cerebral edema. So I was really terrified at that stage because I, I knew I was inebriated by the lack of oxygen. I knew my brain was swelling. And so you, you had to go slow enough to survive and not make a mistake. So it was, it was terrifying for a few hours there. Yeah. So then that was how long from where the summit was, how long did it take? Well, from the summit, it, it took us uh, five hours to get down to camp four, which is at the South call, which is like a divot out of that. And so 
crashed there. We had tents there, so slept like the dead there, and then got up at six o'clock in the morning the next morning, and uh, and scooted all the way down to Camp Three, which is pretty straightforward. And then from Camp Three, it's it's a it's ice climbing all the way down to Camp Two, very steep, glare ice for thousands and thousands of feet. So that was very very dangerous and very very taxing, and I was losing my mind at that stage. Yeah. And then once got down to Camp Two, it had another tent. We slept the night there, and then left the, the, the next morning. And again, that's the second most dangerous part: is going through the ice fall for the last time. And so uh, we survived that, and we did the big vision, which was summiting and safely return out to um, out to base camp. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Oh my gosh. I've never heard the whole story like from you. I mean, I've read it and Kurt's talked to me about it and you've kind of mentioned it, but it's incredible to hear the, you know, and the story doesn't end there, obviously, as you just descend. It's like, I'm sure that it's kind of still going in a certain sense. Yeah, but, it is. Yeah. You know, it's, it is a, I love like the fact that you, you've talked about how, how important the descent was because I think it's, it's like a metaphor for when people do reach their goals usually like they don't have a plan for after they reach the goal they're like oh when i when i do this thing everything is going to be great right it's like and they think like that's the end goal but then when you reach it often it's like no you have to have a a strategy out of the goal or like onto the next goal exactly because you get post-goal memorial which is you know i knew that could happen i knew it was probably going to happen so i it was such a big goal that it, that it had taken years to, to get to. So then what next? And I had seen other teammates kind of melting down after they, they got to the summit. Yeah. And were sitting in a bar in Kathmandu afterwards in tears. I saw, I'd seen that the previous year. And I was like, that is not going to happen to me. I'm going to have some exciting things to do uh, in the future. Yeah. So, uh, and I've always, I've always had that. I've always continued on that dream. Yeah, and right now it's it's just as exciting to uh, to go for a hike in, in the woods for me than it is to to go to some exotic locale and climb a huge mountain. So, yeah, yeah, that's so great. So and what's you- exciting is is that uh, you know my my honey and I, uh, Huddy and I this year are making great plans to go to hike the Camino across the northern Spain, which has been on my goal list yeah. and her goal list. When we the, the day we first met, we were talking about doing it together. Yeah. So uh, we're both ex- really excited about doing that uh, this summer. That's incredible. Yeah, I'm excited to stay uh, to stalk your photos. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so I think, like, generally, right? Like, for you as like a climber, right? Like, your do you think that now having climbed Everest and climbed Kilimanjaro and Denali and all these mountains, right? That part of your identity lies in, you know, being someone that's climbed Everest or like being this skilled mountaineer, I would say. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I was like more into the attention that that brain um, before I got to the summit. I don't know, I got really super overly humble. I hardly ever lead with it. I never talk to anybody about it unless I'm asked. I'm happy to speak with people about it because I and people are pretty excited about it and want to hear about it. And I do a lot of speaking into groups and such. Um, I do keynotes and things for companies and for organizations. And I, I love doing that. I'm happy to do that and share the experience. But if you met me, you would never know because I'm never bringing it up. 
I don't bring it up. I'm just humble in it, I think, you know. Uh, I didn't notice that change. Yeah. Probably a little more cocky uh, going leading up to it and not cocky at all coming out of it because I think it was because I know that I could have gotten killed at any second and people did. Um, so that is not something that I, I speak a lot about. Yeah. What, what do you think was the biggest lesson you learned from your whole experience with Everest? I don't even want to just say actually summiting, but just Everest. Dreams come true. I mean, dreams can come true. Uh, That we have to have dreams, number one, and that big dreams can come true. But they all come from, first of all, identifying what the dreams are and doing our best as human beings to, to make that happen. And then understanding that even then, there's some magic that has to happen too. And you have to be okay with either that magic may happen and it might not happen, mm-hmm. but some magic and the intention and your energy that goes into it are the big three. You can't control the magic. Yeah. Yeah. What I kind of recognize you talking about with like the first summit versus the second was like your intention, like just going into it, tackling it as like, whatever happens, happens. Like I'm doing the best I can versus I need to get to the top of this mountain no matter what. Exactly. Because that's what kills people. Yeah. That's the wrong attitude to have for endeavors like this. Um, And I've seen it done many other people before. Mm -hmm. And I was not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd argue even that that's like the only mentality to have in life. It's like, you can't, like you can, right? But you're going to be disappointed and you're going to get hurt or you're going to hurt other people or it's going to cost, it's going to be at the expense of some yeah. health or life or something. You're going to have a bumpy road with that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. So allow for the magic. Yeah. I love magic. Yeah. <laughs> I love magic too. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. Um, so my, my kind of closing question for you is like, what's your next quote unquote Everest? Like what's the, the next thing for you? Well, I mean, adventure-wise, and the, the Camino is an adventure, and it's mainly a mental adventure. I mean, we can hike 500 miles. That's not a big deal for Heidi and I. But it's, it's a, it, there's going to be a lot of magic and a lot of spirituality to this. People have done this for centuries, yeah. this pilgrimage. And that's pretty exciting. And, and uh, we're, we're not going to have a plan. We're not going to have – we're going to plan the beginning and the end, but we're not going to plan the middle. We're just going to let it flow and see where the magic leads. We're going to experience it. We're going to be in the present. We're not going to be living in the past. We're just going to be open to whatever happens. And that's going to be the right mindset for us. So that's very exciting. But it's also a big adventure for me, helping my clients with chronic pain. Um, I, th- I think that's the big problem in healthcare. I've been in the, 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 a lot of different facets of healthcare as a practitioner and dealing with insurance companies and of course, dealing with the 10,000, over 10,000 patients that I saw directly. Um, I have a pretty good insight into what, what works and what doesn't. And I'm, I'm a very non-medication, non-surgery type person. I'm a wellness advocate. And I'm so gratifying to have my clients get better without pills, without doctors, without drugs, doctors, or deductibles. <laughs> uh, it's it's that's awesome and, and and they're doing it themselves i'm not you know doing anything i'm just coaching them along this road that's very very satisfying 
And I can tell you that that's going to keep me satisfied and keep me growing and adapting and uh, rocking and rolling for the next 10 years for sure. Yeah. So I'll have to set another Everest after that. Yeah, no kidding. That'll be the magic. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh yeah, you guys healed. All right, Everest. <laughs> right. Oh, I love that. And before right, so, we're popping on, right. no, I was gonna say before before we hit record, like we were talking about, you know, maybe maybe making my way out there at some point, twenty twenty one. Yes, uh, because you know Nepal is such an awesome country. The people are so so nice, and the trek to base camp is just out of this world. And it's a very spiritual thing too, because it's very heavily Buddhist. And the Buddhist, uh, the basis of, of Buddhism is kind of paying it forward. Mm. They believe in reincarnation. So the better they do in this life, the better their next life and their next life and their next life is going to be. And it's really a beautiful way to, to look at things. And so they're all about being of service and being kind to themselves and to others. So I just, I just think it's, a, it's beautiful to hang out in that environment and be among the biggest mountains in the world. Yeah. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. So uh, yeah. That's Let's so exciting. Go. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> Big stuff. Yeah. Um, so for everyone listening, like where can they find you? What's what's new in your life? Like, you know, if they're trying to find out information or just, you know, want to hear you speak or read your books, tell them everything. Well, uh, first of all, you could go to um, uh, Amazon and you can get both my books right there. The first book is Lessons from Everest which is the, the, if you want to hear the whole, the whole trip from the beginning to the first one to the second one and the lessons learned, learn a little bit more about awareness. And, uh, and that's a great book. And that's still, I have people, I have companies that recommend that book. I just, today I got two emails from a company that is, that's their required reading for uh, their, their company. Nobody's in climb Everest. They just like the lessons that are in it. Yeah. And my second book is Feet, Fork, and Fun, How to Fail Your Way to Fitness, which talks about the physical, the chemical, and the emotional aspects of life and how in the little to-do list that we can all set for ourselves. And that's that book went to number three on Amazon's bestseller list, granted for about three milliseconds. Yeah. Oh, my God. And, um, and uh, Jack Canfield, um, I'm not sure if you know who Jack Canfield is. He was a Chicken Soup for the Soul guy. He's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Sold the most books in the history of the world because he, he wrote the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. And, and he loved Feet Fork and Fun. And he, on my website, which is, um, you can put the link on your, on your stuff, but uh, mm-hmm. the link to that, you can see a video with, uh, he's interviewing, he had his, had his mansion out in, uh, out in California. So, uh, um, yeah, so you can do that. And if you're uh, an athlete, an outdoor athlete, a, a biker, a, a boarder, a kayaker, a climber, a hiker, and you're, you're suffering with chronic pain, then uh, I've got some free stuff for you on my page, which you'll leave the link for. Cool. The, there's a couple of downloads of, of just the proper mindset that you have to have to, to lose the chronic pain and get back on your bike and back on your board, back on your trail back on your Camino, whatever it is, and get to the top of your Everest. So I highly recommend you get that. It's free. Just get on that link and you can download that for free. I love that. So fun. Yeah. So I'll be here to post all the links in the show notes, you guys. So please go check him out. Um, Amazing stuff and a lot of freebies on there. So you can kind of get acquainted with your back pain, you know, and overcoming that. Um, And before we wrap up, a few uh, really quick rapid fire questions and then a little question to end and then 
we'll close it up. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. Um, number one, favorite mountain climbed? Denali. Denali. Most beautiful mountain, absolutely. Most spiritual was, was Everest, but the most beautiful by far was Denali for sure. Nice. Alaska. Right. Alaska's crazy. Alaska's like the last frontier. Alaska's like, it's like the, still like the gold rush times. The mentality is crazy. Way different than here. Anyway, next question. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on and out. Like another whole podcast episode. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Alaska. Nuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, favorite um, meal consumed while climbing Everest? Uh, freeze-dried spaghetti and meatballs. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Cool. If a food could have no calories, what would it be? Air. Oxygen. <laughs> and as we know, oxygen. We'll never think about oxygen again. Uh, the same way because we it's, it's we need to be grateful for our oxygen fair fair <laughs> and also christmas cookies <laughs> christmas cookies. Also, well, yeah but there's yeah uh, it's, it's, a, it's a battle between those two <laughs> amazing um and then last question um your legacy what do you want to leave people behind when you you know at the end of your life what's your legacy going to be i would say the concept of awareness of truly living in the present. And, uh, and part of that present, being in the present, is, is just realizing the, that there's magic in the world. I think we get so beat down with it with the to-do lists and, and all the, the concrete nature of the world that we have to remember that um, a huge part of our existence is magic. Yeah, I love that. It's so simple, and, so beautiful. And, and the connection of magic and, and, and to our, our human potential there's a link. It's up to us as individuals to find what that link is. Yeah. Oh. So awareness, awareness of magic. Love it. <laughs> now you need like a little, um, you know, little wands with a little fairy dust. Yeah. A little ice axe. Yeah. I know what I'm getting you for your birthday. <laughs> magic wand. Yeah. 60th yeah. birthday magic wand. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay well thank you so much for taking time and being on um i know that everyone's gonna love this and it's been it's been great hearing kind of your just you know all of the emotions all of the the story and in the depth and how applicable it is to the you know just our everyday person me included that hasn't climbed everest but like we all have we all have that thing that we want so yeah, thank you for sharing it's really been great sam thanks so much for having me Yes, we will talk soon, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye-bye. Alrighty, that wraps up another episode of the Balance with Sam podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to listen. And I really hope that Tim's story inspired you. I know that it it makes me think, like, are my goals big enough, you know? Um, but I think it also makes me think, like, have I done my best? You know, like, is this the best that I could do? Am I doing my best? And I hope that it encourages you to ask yourself that. Another thing that we chatted about that you can kind of go off and do this as an exercise is what's on your virtual dashboard, right? Like what do you need in order to feel good? What are your non-negotiables? How can you check in with yourself? Because awareness is the first step. And I know that Tim's analogy of that virtual dashboard is huge for me. I kind of have it now in my head. I'm like, ooh, what's on my dashboard? So I want you to think about like what's on yours and what do you need to feel good and, and show up as your best self? So thank you again for Tim's courage and bravery 
and sharing his story and just being a total badass. And I hope that this episode was helpful. If you enjoyed it, please send me a screenshot of it. Tag me on Instagram, or you can head over to my website, www.balancewithsam.com and just, you know, get in touch with me there. All right. I love you guys. I will catch you on the next episode. Thank you.